as, as we begin in the book of Acts, um, I just wanted to give it a brief introduction. Um, this letter is a, a follow-up to Luke's last letter to his friend Theophilus. Um, it, it links, this, this book links the Gospels, the, the, the Gospels of Mark, uh, Matthew, Luke, and John to the rest of the New Testament. Uh, Acts is a, is a continuation of the, the Gospel of Luke. It is a letter about the work that Jesus is doing to restore the earth after his resurrection and ascension. This letter is, is about the work of the early disciples beginning in Jerusalem, then to Judea, Samaria, and to the nations. Their work as documented for us here was to teach people how to live Jesus as king. So with that being said, let's go and see what God has for us today. Acts 1, verse 1. In the first book, O Theophilus, I have dealt with all that Jesus began to do and teach until the day when he was taken up after he had given commands through the Holy Spirit to the apostles whom he had chosen. He presented himself alive to them after his suffering by many proofs, appearing to them during 40 days and speaking about the kingdom of God. And while staying with them, he ordered them not to depart from Jerusalem, but to wait for the promise of the Father, which he said, you heard from me, for John baptized with water, but you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit not many days from now. So when they had come together, they asked him, Lord, will you at this time restore the kingdom to Israel? He said to them, it is not for you to know times or seasons that the Father has fixed by his own authority. But you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you. And you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and in Samaria and to the end of the earth. And when he had said these things, as they were looking on, he was lifted up and a, cl and a cloud took him out of their sight. And while they were gazing into heaven, as he went, behold, two men stood by in white robes and said, Men of Galilee, why do you stand looking into heaven? This Jesus, who was taken up from you into heaven, will come in the same way as you saw him go into heaven. May the Lord add the blessings to his word.
So the key question quickly introduced when we crack open the book of Acts, when, when we're reading and properly understanding this book, it's, is this book a prescription, a prescriptive text, or is it a descriptive text? Prescriptive would be something we believe the Bible is prescribing specific truths and instruction for us the church to live by today. Descriptive would be describing a historical account of something that had happened, but not that we should necessarily follow and abide by. Take the story of, of David and Goliath, for example. Uh, Goliath was blaspheming God and mocking his people, and, and David fought him by slinging a stone, killing him, and cutting his head off. Understanding this account as descriptive would mean we can learn from history, the history that's been revealed there, like, like trusting in God to fight our battles and conquer our enemies. However, if 1 Samuel 17 is prescriptive, then we might start slinging rocks and beheading blasphemers everywhere could get a little tricky. But, but this account of David, it displays him as a type of Christ. As we're, as we're reading and understanding and trying to rightly divide the word, it's, it's about his coming person of Jesus, slaying a great enemy. As David heralded and Israel learned, and we should likewise proclaim, the battle is the Lord's. It's for our edification, but the Bible doesn't command us to follow this as a way of life today. So, how do we interpret Acts? Is it prescriptive? Is it descriptive? I am taking the approach and under the conviction and belief that it is both. It is not simply and woodenly one way or the other everywhere. If it were only prescriptive, we might be casting lots for who preaches next Sunday. If it were only descriptive, when someone is filled with the Spirit and begins speaking in tongues, we might freak out, tell them to be quiet. The Lord doesn't do that today, right? You hear this tension in the church today. There's a lot of abuse one way or the other. But that's where we're trying to rightly divide the word and understand what God has for us. So there are three points that I want to get across as we look at our passage today. The first being that the Holy Spirit indwells believers at conversion and enables them to live a righteous and faithful life. Two, God has revealed himself in his dealings with Israel, then through his son, Jesus, and now in the last days through the Holy Spirit. Three, the outpouring of the Holy Spirit is the work God promised to do to 
bring his kingdom, and the Holy Spirit continues to do a supernatural work in the life of believers to expand the reign of his kingdom, giving spiritual power for the purpose of Christ's exalting ministry to exalt the name of Jesus in every sphere of life. I know that was a long one. I'm going to say it one more time. It's really important that we, we grasp this. I tried to shorten and condense it the most I can. The, the outpouring of the Holy Spirit is the work God promised to do. To bring his kingdom and the Holy Spirit continues to do a supernatural work in the life of the believers to expand the reign of his kingdom, giving spiritual power for the purpose of Christ's exalting ministry to exalt the name of King Jesus in every sphere of life. And, and, and that work, that idea should excite us. The idea, not only that Jesus is king, but that he's, he's reigning and ruling and having authority. That should excite us and stir our hearts as we just imagine it, and then even more as we see it. Verses 1 and 2. Luke opens this letter to Theophilus, reminding him about what he had previously written about. It was about the life and teaching of Jesus during his earthly ministry. The, this introduction that he gives us indicates to us that this letter, which we refer to as the book of Acts, is about a continued work that Jesus is doing in teaching and leading his people. Luke is referring back to Luke 24, 51, describing the ascension of Jesus into heaven and, and explaining he is now writing how Jesus continues to teach and lead his people after his ascension and being seated as king. Verse 3, Luke reminds us what Jesus was teaching about for several weeks after his crucifixion and before his ascension into heaven. So, crucifixion, resurrection, Jesus is teaching. People are stunned. <laughs> Jesus is alive. And he stays for weeks with them. And what does he teach? The kingdom of God. In this introduction, Luke is bringing our minds back here to post-crucifixion, pre-ascension, ministry of Jesus, to get us in the right mindset of what he's writing about as we're reading what we are right now. Jesus, for 40 days, had appeared, proving his resurrection through many witnesses. For 40 days... Jesus was speaking with them about the kingdom of God. Forty days. This is absolutely the climatic moment in history Jesus is revealing what the Father had planned to do. We're going to talk about this more when we get to verse 6. When the disciples plea and, and ask about the kingdom being restored to Israel. For now, we carry on, verses 4 to 5. Jesus 
Jesus instructs his disciples not to leave Jerusalem. Don't leave. Don't go. So you have all this talk about the kingdom of God. And now Jesus says, go and wait. Wait for the promise from the Father. What promise? What promise are they waiting for? The promise we read about in places like Joel 2.28. This is not some new idea or introduction. The book of Joel, we read that, and it shall come to pass afterward that I will pour out my spirit on all flesh. Your sons and your daughters shall prophesy. Your old men shall dream dreams and your young men shall see visions. This promise has been long planned and long expected to be fulfilled. Forty days of teaching from the prophesied Messiah after the fulfilling of Scripture about what was accomplished in his being put to death, now raised from the dead and appearing before many and teaching about the kingdom. But wait, he says, just wait. Oh, I can imagine the anticipation here. You know the baptism of John. He baptized you with water, but I'm going to baptize you with the Holy Spirit. Remember that this letter is a reminder about the writing in Luke 24 where Luke documents Jesus teaching his disciples that they will be his witnesses to the nations proclaiming forgiveness of sins and his kingship. John, in the same account of this event that we're reading about, wrote about Jesus' teaching of the coming persecution. That they, as his witnesses, would be hated and persecuted just as he was. He says, what they did to me, they're going to do it to you. Be ready. He tells them to wait don't do anything until he comes. This work of the advancement of the kingdom of God was completely and utterly dependent on the Holy Spirit. Don't go. Don't just wait. Wait until I send him. I'm sending him. Verses 6 and 7. So much must be going on in the minds of the disciples. But here is what they know. Jesus prepares them for his kingdom reign, which they undoubtedly see him now as king. They know they are the witnesses he's sending out, and they know from what he told them that it's not going to be a cakewalk. Get ready for the 
dreadful persecution against you. Is this the time, they ask, is this the time when you're going to restore the kingdom to Israel? It's a pretty reasonable question after all this talk, isn't it? He doesn't give them a direct yes or no. Rather, he tells them not to concern themselves with timing, with timing. Knowledge of the time of restoration belongs to God. Something he chose not to reveal to them. Verse 8, he tells them not to worry about timing. Don't worry about timing. Go and wait for the Holy Spirit. You see, the, the disciples are trying to figure out what's going on, and they rightly are associating the coming of the Holy Spirit with the kingdom of God. Why? Why are they making this association? Isaiah. Isaiah spoke of the brokenness coming to, and, and, and the restoration of Israel. In chapters 32, verse 15, it, it, it reads, Until the Spirit is poured upon us from on high, and the wilderness becomes a fruitful field, and the fruitful field is deemed a forest. Then justice will dwell in the wilderness, and righteousness abide in the fruitful field. And the effect of righteousness will be peace, and the result of righteousness, quietness and trust forever. Again, in chapter 44, verses 3 to 5, the prophetic words of Isaiah. For I will pour water on the thirsty land and streams of the dry ground. I will pour my spirit upon your offering and my blessing on your descendants. They shall spring up among the grass like willows by flowing streams. This, will, this one will say, I am the Lord's. Another will call in the name of Jacob. And another will write on his hand, the Lord's. And name himself by the name of Israel. Uh-oh. I think we see a little talk about hand marking that's not Antichrist microchips. We keep reading. And the prophet Ezekiel, chapter 39, verses 28 and 29. Then they shall know that I am the Lord their God, because I sent them into exile among the nations and then assembled them into their own land. I will leave none of them remaining among the nations anymore. And I will not hide my face from them. When I pour out my Spirit upon the house of Israel, declares the Lord. We already looked at the passage from Joel. Not only do they have many texts like this to associate the kingdom of God, with the arrival 
of the Spirit. But they have present exhortations from the likes of John the Baptist. Repent, the kingdom of God is at hand. Jesus, if I drive out demons by the finger of God, then the kingdom of God has come to you. That's in Luke chapter 11, verse 20. Likewise, when they persecute you in one town, flee to the next. I say to you, you will not have gone through all the towns of Israel before the Son of Man comes. That was Matthew 10, verse 23. Truly I say to you, there are some standing here. There are some standing here who will not taste death until they see the Son of Man coming in His kingdom. Matthew 16, 28. This is during Jesus' earthly ministry. Speaking to those standing around Him. Some of you, you are here, standing here now, will not die before seeing me come in my kingdom. Let's keep moving forward. In verses 9 through 11. Jesus' words in Acts 1.8 were the last words that he spoke to his disciples before ascending into heaven. He's telling them the work they are to do, telling them of a specific place to go and wait, and that the Holy Spirit is coming to do the work. And then he ascends into heaven. It's the last thing he told them in his presence. To this point, the disciples only know to follow Jesus. He was crucified and they scattered. Now he's risen from the grave and they're encouraged and regathered. And then he leaves again. There he goes. They're all staring as he ascends to heaven. Huh. They must be thinking, why? <laughs> Come back. Even though they have the promise of the prophets of old, they undoubtedly remain in a state of confusion. We know what came. They don't, at this point, know really what to expect still. All they know is, is following teachers and religious leaders. They have rabbis. They follow. They learn from. They sit under. This is their way of life. This is how they are educated. What is it going to look like to follow this Spirit, this Holy Spirit that Jesus had promised from long ago? 
what is the role of the Holy Spirit? And why does Luke talk about him the way that he does? What is the role of the Holy Spirit? And why does Luke talk about him the way he does? When looking at biblical doctrine of the Holy Spirit, which is called pneumatology, we see the Holy Spirit as a person. He's a person. He is God. Just like we would refer to Jesus, or we would refer to the Father, we likewise refer to the Spirit. He has a distinct role and purpose in the redemptive plan of God and to exalt and glorify himself among all creation. Receiving the Holy Spirit or or the indwelling of the Holy Spirit, this is a, a miraculous work of God that happens at conversion and marks and seals the Christian, signifying that he or she belongs to God. When you think about marks on hands or marks on foreheads, this is what you should be thinking about. These are the things that should be going through your mind, not vaccines and microchips, being marked by the Holy Spirit, being driven by and guided by the Holy Spirit. This is the marking Receiving the Holy Spirit is something that only happens to the born-again believer. It happens once. You are brought to life from death. And you can't go back to the state you were before he came into you. Ephesians 1.13 reads, In him you also, when you heard the word of truth, of your salvation and believed in Him were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit. But then Jesus, Jesus talks about this empowering, this this baptism of the Holy Spirit. In, In Luke's letters, And I really encourage you to look at this later today and compare this. In Luke's letters, he seems to focus more on a specific work of the Holy Spirit. Luke focuses more on an empowering and a supernatural role that the Holy Spirit has in the believer's lives. Like in Acts 1.8, when Jesus tells them not to leave until they're clothed, until they're covered in power from on high. Don't go until you receive this power. It is important to distinguish the abiding and sealing work of the Holy Spirit from the empowering work of the Holy Spirit in believers' lives. It's an important thing to distinguish. 
We're, we are commanded not to be drunk with wine, but to be filled with the Holy Spirit. And Ephesians 5. This isn't an exhortation to be saved. He's using this imagery to explain what one is controlled by. Don't get drunk with wine. Be filled with the Spirit. If you drink too much, your movement, your speech, your cognitive ability are all affected by the wine. It's the controlling agent in your life. Conversely, Paul exhorts us to be filled with the Holy Spirit in such a way that our actions, our movement, our speech, our cognitive ability are all affected, are all controlled by Him. This is not the abuses that we've seen being drunk or slain in the Spirit, smacking people down with jackets and waving our hands around and knocking people over like a bunch of idiots. Not what this is. That type of thing quenches the Holy Spirit. If, and that's if, He's even among that kind of nonsense. Being filled with the Spirit is, is not quenching His work. He came here to do it. Don't quench Him. It's not, it's not trying to take credit or use your own strength to do the work that He came to do. In fact, the reason there is an increasing dullness throughout many congregations today is due to our fear of letting the Holy Spirit do His work and empower us for ministry inside and outside of the gathering. We quench the Spirit when we rely on anything other than Him to do in life and in all of ministry. If I trust in my intellect or my form of speech to captivate you today, I, I change my tone to engage you. Rather than simply relaying what has already been delivered by God in the Bible. If I rely on that rather than just speaking already revealed truths, and trusting in the Holy Spirit to take those words, the words that I am talking, and convicting you, encouraging you, building you up, and edifying your mind and hearts. Anything other than that reliance on Him and Him alone would be quenching the Spirit. Trying to get the right lighting Get the smoke machines out, guys. Turn up the air conditioner. We don't even have an air conditioner. We have a swamp cooler. Problem solved. Anything other than that. Quenched 
quenched. The work of the Holy Spirit is to convict the world of sin and lead and give wisdom to those that he indwells and to encourage and empower us for ministry. I know, I've said this a few times, and I want to hammer this down because, boy, do I want to see the Holy Spirit take control of this place, starting here with us and to the city of Douglas and to the cities surrounding us, states and countries, to the world. The Holy Spirit is not reliant on us. Get out of the way. Trust in Him. Be controlled by Him and rely on Him for everything that you do. I, I don't care where it is. that It could be here in the church gathering. Be raising our kids at your job. Anywhere you go about your day, rely on the Spirit for your direction. The Holy Spirit desires to bring fame to the name of Jesus in this way. And it's us that too often screw that up. But who are we to propose the idea that the omnipotent power of the Holy Spirit could ever be quenched by mere creatures? Who are we to interfere with a sovereign God that does as He pleases? We're not the one to propose that idea. Paul did in his first letter to Thessalonica. In chapter 5, he, he commands, do not quench the Spirit. Do not despise prophecies. But test everything, hold fast to what is good, and abstain from every form of evil. I would encourage us and our brothers in the Reformed communities to, to really embrace things like that because we have taken a very cautious approach to spiritual gifts, if we affirm them at all. Paul exhorted the church, don't quench the Spirit. Don't despise prophetic work. Test everything and hold fast to what is good. One of the things I love about how we structure our gathering at Douglas Reformed Church, is, is that we, we acknowledge the importance of orderliness and structure, but we're not too wooden or, or rigid as to rely on ourselves to do the work. We ensure that, that we do what? We, we pray together. We sing praises. We participate in the Lord's Supper we baptize as often as the Lord adds to our numbers. And we proclaim the, the faithfully divided Word of God 
among the congregation. It's just planned. I'm here. I'd studied all week long. We brought our wine. Thank you, Kathy, for cooking the bread. These are planned things. This is not disorderly or confusing. But then we, we stay gathered. We stayed gathered together for longer than our structured liturgical worship. Listen, please. Do you feel, do you feel led to encourage us through words? Is he doing that in you today? Is he encouraging you to sing a spiritual song of praise to our risen and reigning King? He's stirring you to do that today. To dance with all your might like David did. Let him work. Let him work. Let him work. He empowers you with purposes, that ministry, to build each other up to the glory and fame of His name. Don't hinder Him. We are so careful, so often, often just too cautious about letting God do His work. We don't discourage that among our gathering. We won't discourage that among our gathering. Now, you can be sure that we're going to test it. And we love you enough to tell you that if you're acting a fool, you're going to know. But my, oh my, don't think about those things if the Spirit's moving in you to do something to praise His name, especially in ways that we see gifted. I am, I am quite excited, and I hope you guys are too, because we're getting to that as Andrew's going to be preaching um, in the coming weeks in 1 Corinthians. We're going to be getting into the gifts that, that God has given us, supernatural, empowering work to grow and spread His kingdom. Lastly, as we close today for our liturgical time of worship before we observe the Lord's table, I just wanted to let you guys know as I am, this is my first time in Douglas Reformed Church proclaiming God's word as an assembly. Praise God. Praise God. It's exciting. I just want you to know that as I labor along with Andrew together to serve you, my aim is simply that which we see plainly in the purpose for the church in Scripture. This is my, this is my direction, my hope, my prayer for you guys, for me, for us that we are utterly 
and completely dependent on God's Word as the authority that drives our life for ministry, the ministry of this church, this ecclesia, this gathering. Depend, test, even as I speak today. My words are only true if they are in line with Scripture, and it is your responsibility to hear what I have to say and test it against God's authoritative word that is revealed in the Scriptures. And it is that we expectantly petition our Lord. We, we petition Him in our prayers and our songs. We pray and ask for boldness in word-saturated ministry as we live and proclaim the gospel here in this small town and to the nations for His glory, for His glory, not ours. Let's pray together. Father, the, the purposes, the perfection and beauty in your plan of creation and redemption, the, the, the plan that you have purposed from before the foundation of this earth to work about your creatures, to bring them to you, Lord, to to proclaim salvation to the world, for our joy to be found in You. Lord Jesus, we thank You and praise You for coming, for walking amongst us, for condescending to Your fallen creatures that have rebelled against You. We praise You for Your condescension, Lord. Lord Jesus, you proclaimed and revealed truth which carries power, changes lives, brings the dead man to life. I praise you today and thank you today for suffering on that cross for revealing the good news of your kingdom, for ascending and sitting as king and sending the Holy Spirit. And Holy Spirit, I pray to you and plea with you as you abide within us and you cover the face of this earth and you convict the world. You are doing the work. We don't need to tell people why they need to feel bad. We, we preach and proclaim the gospel. What, what you have already disclosed, what you have already revealed among your creatures. We speak what you have said, and you do the work of convicting, of transforming, of bringing to life the dead. And that you don't stop 
at our conversion and sit in an ambiguous and quiet section of our little hearts. But that you overpower our being and our minds every bit of our existence and bring us into subjection to Christ and His dominion over this world. Holy Spirit, I pray for Your work to be done amongst us in our body. For us to be encouraged and emboldened and empowered by You, not a manufacturing of ourselves or our will. That You lead us with authority to proclaim Christ and Him crucified. That people would hear the good news of the Gospel and receive the joy of the good news of the Gospel and that You would indwell them and bring them to life to the glory of the Father. We petition You today because we are unable to do any of it. We need You completely and utterly today and tomorrow for the rest of the days that you have granted us life and breath. Do this work amongst us, Lord. I pray as we continue to exalt your name by sitting at your table we are in communion with the reigning, the living God of all creation, of all existence. You are seated with us and commune with us. Lord, I pray, I pray for you to prepare our hearts at this weighty moment. We do not take this lightly. Prepare our hearts as we Prepare to fellowship together with you at your table. May you be honored and glorified. In the name of Jesus, we pray. Amen.